Looming out on Lake Michigan are the remnants of antiquated water cribs connected to the decaying tunnels that once ran underneath the lake itself. And not far from the shoreline is the famous Chicago Water Tower. These are landmarks people associate with the waterworks of the Windy City. However, they are also landmarks that deal with the aspects of fresh potable water. With that in mind, did you ever wonder about the history of the system of waste disposal? Or how the millions of toilets flushing across Chicago are accommodated? Well, as it turns out, cleanliness and sanitation are rooted deep in Chicago's history. So much so that the city itself changed to fit its sanitary needs. This is the story of Chicago's sewer system. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. As we've mentioned in a previous episode of its history, Chicago's initial placement as a city was both a blessing and a curse. On the plus side, its placement on Lake Michigan gave it access to trade across the Great Lakes, and eventually, thanks to the Erie Canal, to the Atlantic Ocean. It also offered access to the Great Lakes' enormous fresh water supply, which it would use to expand to metropolitan heights. However, its first settlers constructed the city on what was basically a swamp. It was extremely close to the water table, to the point that its streets turned into mud at the slightest rainfall. Another consequence of its placement was that the standard method of waste disposal at the time was simply to throw waste into nearby bodies of water, usually rivers, like the Chicago River. However, due to the flow of the Chicago River, that wastewater ended up going directly into Lake Michigan, which also happened to be the standard location of water collection. The Chicago River itself was little more than a two-foot creek at this point. It usually ran very slowly in dry weather, but after rainfall or snowmelt, it flooded into an enormous height, whisking all of the refuse the city people had collected into the lake in which it emptied. At the time, this was generally not thought of as an issue, let alone even really a concern. It was just one of the ways that people would typically dispose of waste. The public generally did not even understand germ theory, so this was just how things went. However, with the present-day hindsight, one can quickly see how throwing raw sewage into the city's drinking water supply was a horrendously bad idea. Diseases communicated from contaminated water are known as waterborne pathogens. Most notable of these diseases was cholera, which soared through the city's population in the 19th century. Every epidemic claimed hundreds of lives if the city was lucky, thousands if it was not. 1854 saw a cholera outbreak that claimed the lives of 1,424 people, but cholera was by no means the only killer. Between 1854 and 1860, 1,600 people lost their lives to dysentery. From 1858 to 1863, 1,200 fatalities were seen to scarlet fever. By this time, Illinois state legislator realized how deadly a lack of sanitation was. Leaving waste disposal entirely in the hands of its people just led to more death. 1852 saw them take decisive action, empowering sewage commissioners with the ability to install sewers in the most densely populated areas of Chicago and carve out sewage ditches in the remaining locations. Unfortunately, there was a big problem with this plan. With Chicago being as low to the water table as it was, 
there quite literally wasn't any room to put in new sewers. In response, the city council decided to take drastic action in the name of sanitation. They ordered the elevation of the entire city, anywhere from 4 to 14 feet, depending on the location. The workers employed to carry out these elevations placed jacks underneath every building needing lifting and turned the jacks in unison as not to damage any structures. Applying sewer systems and other water pipes with these jacks in place was a curiosity to the public. Buildings were not even closed or evacuated during the process. Many businesses remained open during the elevation and installation of sewer connections, with most residents not even noticing any physical changes. Thanks to the raising of the city, Chicago was positioned to be one of the first American cities to have a complete sewer system. During the process of raising, the sewer commission built the sewer pipes atop what was once the streets as the workers raised the buildings around it. These main sewer lines angled downward, allowing gravity to direct the refuse into intended disposal locations. The lifted buildings permanently eased access to the underside of the structures, making the connection to the sewers a trivial matter. With the new lines, earth packed in around the pipes made up the new roads. Most of the dirt actually came from the dredging of the Chicago River, solving two issues at once. It pulled up the earth needed to raise the buildings to whatever elevation necessary and widened the river to accommodate more incoming waste. With the dirt set, the city eventually paved new roads on top of it. Even with the introduction of the sewer system, Chicago's pollution issue continued to worsen. The city's growth introduced industrial waste, which was dumped directly into the Chicago River. One example of note was the meatpacking waste, which poured so much rancid meat into a fork of the Chicago River that the water began to constantly bubble as the decomposing leftovers from the slaughterhouse released gases. Thus, this branch of the river gained the nickname Bubbly Creek, much to the dismay of the sanitary activities everywhere else. Meatpacking was not the only industrial culprit in polluting the Chicago River. Most industries, including tanneries and distilleries, dumped into the north branch of the Chicago River and the Calumet River. In fact, Iron and steel mills created enough waste to provide the materials necessary to extend the lakefront of southeast Chicago and northwestern Indiana, as at that point, Chicago was polluting their own water on a previously unheard of scale. The Chicago River rapidly became a vile, vomit-inducing site with all these factors. However, something happened around the 1850s that shaped how Chicago disposed of its waste forever. The river began to flow backwards, causing endless controversy, but doing wonders for the water of Lake Michigan. So now let's take a look at how the Chicago sewer system actually works and what remains of its original installations. At the start of the system is Lake Michigan, the primary water source for the whole of the city. Several methods exist for drawing water from the lake, such as the old water cribs, which now only have two active locations. The water cribs draw water from the stone protrusions at the lake's surface and send the water down into the tunnels bored beneath the lake 
towards the city. Several pumps in the canals around Chicago's rivers also draw in clean water from Lake Michigan and the rivers that use it as a source. From there, drinking water travels through about 4,300 miles of water mains connecting it to the various buildings of Chicago. The citizens then use the water however they need, be it for drinking, cleaning, cooking, or other tasks. After that, any excess water or wastewater goes down the drain into the 4,400 miles of sewers. The old sewer systems constructed during the raising of Chicago quickly maneuvered the waste down into the disposal locations discussed earlier. At one time, the waste was simply sent downstream, but today it's obviously treated. Like most other sewer systems in America, the pipes first laid in the raising of Chicago are still in place today. While those pipes still remain, some now route in new paths to take waste into canals rather than just the lake. At the same time, wholesale expansion has not occurred since the connection of all the city's buildings to the system, but links to private properties have, and as these are private lands, they aren't part of the network, meaning the 4,400 miles of sewers are in reality much, much larger. But there isn't a realistic way to know the exact number. The last time the sewers of Chicago were easily accessible for expansion and installation was during the rising of Chicago, and the jacks used to elevate the buildings are still present underneath many structures. Well, they don't serve much of a purpose now that the structures are just standing on solid earth again. They technically remain down there. You see, there wasn't a good reason to remove them, as taking them out would only disturb the buildings that had now found a new standing elevation. This system is by no means perfect. One of the biggest problems facing Chicago in modern times is that the vast majority of the pipes laid during the 1850s were primarily lead. 400,000 lead service lines remain in active use today, and about 80% of Chicago's homes continue to use lead pipes. Over two-thirds of homes tested voluntarily responded with positive results for lead. Should this issue go unattended, it could potentially cause hazardous water contamination issues. Much of the wastewater produced by the city still finds its way into the Chicago River, but now it is much more sanitary. Considering the reversal of the river, the various canals and their pumps kept the wastewater out of Lake Michigan. That's not to say Chicago only dumps their waste into the waterways. It also uses several water treatment methods to turn wastewater back into water fit for consumption. Amongst these methods was TARP, which we covered in depth in our previous video. Containing the quantity of human filth produced in a city as vast as Chicago is an unimaginable challenge. Think about it. Basically, every food product for sale will someday end up in the water chain, but in a far less edible form. Indeed, times have changed, and those toxins don't end up directly back into the water source. But still, when wastewater discharges into the Chicago River, its bacteria count spikes to dangerous levels. However, since it's a movable body of water, these spikes get filtered out relatively quickly. But still, the river itself will never be clean enough for fishing or swimming. It also does not help when you have careless citizens dumping their own waste directly into the river independent of the sewer system. Such was the case with the Dave Matthews banned Chicago River incident. Now, I don't normally do this, but today we will read directly from Wikipedia. 
On August the 8th, 2004, over the Kenzie Street Bridge in Chicago, Illinois, a tour bus belonging to the Dave Matthews Band dumped an estimated 800 pounds of human waste from the bus's septic tank onto a passenger sightseeing boat on the Chicago River below. The resulting controversy led to more than $300,000 in settlements donations, and fines. The article continues that during warm months, the Chicago Architectural Foundation offers a boat tour of buildings along the Chicago River. The boats have open roof seating where passengers sit for the duration of the tour. Most Chicago bridges feature riveted grating, which is used for its strength and anti-slip properties. Riveted grating also allows rain and other liquids to pass through, removing need for a complicated drainage system. The incident took place on Sunday, August the 8th, 2004 at 1.18 p.m. Bus driver Stefan Wuhi was alone on the bus on his way to a downtown hotel when he emptied the bus's septic tank as it crossed the metal gate of the Kenzie Street Bridge. Earlier, passenger boat Chicago Little Lady left Navy Pier at its 1 p.m. scheduled boat tour departure. While passing under the bridge, the boat received the full contents of the tank on the seats of its open roof terrace. Roughly two-thirds of the 120 passengers aboard this tour boat were soaked. The boat immediately returned to Navy Pier where all passengers were issued a refund. Five passengers went to the Northwestern Memorial Hospital for testing. According to the Illinois Attorney General, passengers aboard included people with disabilities, the elderly, a pregnant woman, a small child, and an infant. The filing also described the incident further. The liquid waste was brownish, yellow in color, and had a foul, offensive odor. The liquid human waste went into passengers' eyes, mouths, hair, and onto clothing and personal belongings, many of which were soaked. Some of the passengers suffered nausea and vomiting as a result of exposure to human waste. Now, I'm sorry if I've made your stomachs curl, but I think this weird story illustrates some important realities and challenges when it comes to governing wastewater. Think about it. If in modern day, one of America's most well-behaved, clean-cut, preppy, corporate bands could be associated with a bus driver that dumps their waste directly into the river of Chicago. You really have to wonder what people who don't even pretend to have a clean image get away with. The Dave Matthews Band paid dearly for this incident, but it was only because they were caught. How many buses might have dumped their waste directly into the river and gotten away with it? Perhaps my point here is that one bad apple truly can poison the well. Which is disgraceful when considering what an effort has been made to have fresh water in the first place. Thousands of miles of pipes, the literal lifting of an entire city, boring tunnels underneath one of America's greatest lakes, and the reversal of a major river. The Windy City never ceases to amaze, so don't miss our Chicago playlist and subscribe to its history for more. This is Ryan Sokash, signing off.